So I'm a second generation immigrant. My father moved to the U.S. in the 80s to pursue his Ph.D. in botany. I like to consider myself the freedom child because of the one child policy law in China, which (laughs) would have prevented me from ever existing. So I thank America for that. And now I think that my family is almost like the epitome of, you know, the American dream that people seek and strive for when they come to America. And I like to think that my my family has contributed a lot to, you know, American society as a whole. And we have to keep this dream alive so that we can continue bringing in the best and brightest, that this is still a place that people want to go so that they can reach their full potential. Trump this week banned valid H-1B holders from entering the country. Aside from upending over 150,000 lives, what does this mean for the future of America's technology ecosystem? To discuss, we have on Tina Huang and Remco Zwetslut, both from CSET, who have recently published work on AI talent flows and immigration policy. By the way, if you've been enjoying the show lately, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash talk. Thank you two so much for coming on the show. So where did this policy come from? The recent executive order on immigration has been in the pipeline for a while, at least since the COVID crisis began. People have been talking about, you know, potentially a, a measure somewhere along these lines. Yeah, it's hard to argue this is anything but nativist when Stephen Miller was trying to do it six months ago with the lowest uh, unemployment rates in decades. But now there's this sort of cover where he can say he's saving American jobs. Most economists see immigration as a net benefit both to the country as a whole, but also to American workers. So there are, for example, studies that show that, you know, a rise in immigrant workers in particular cities actually raises the wage levels of domestic workers in those cities. So, you know, COVID is a unique time and it's it's tough to know how many of those conclusions generalize to a moment where we're sort of in a pandemic. I think for me, the most telling evidence that the employment effects are probably not huge is that unemployment nationally is uh, tragically high. But when you actually look at the sectors that a lot of H-1B workers and other people on immigrant visas work in, which is primarily the computing sector and sort of high-tech fields, unemployment rates there remain low today and actually have decreased somewhat since, since the COVID crisis began. So in computing occupations, for example, I think the unemployment rate as of the latest numbers is still below 3% and has actually dropped a little bit in the last couple of months. I'd also say that a lot of our research focuses specifically on AI talent. And so right now we're seeing a huge demand for more AI talent. And a lot of AI employers rely on the H-1B program to bring in these foreign workers. And right now the domestic supply doesn't the demand for these sorts of workers. And so it's going to be critical that we still are bringing in the necessary workers to fill these roles despite the pandemic that's going on. You know, I want to go on a little a little riff here. Over half of the audience of the show is is abroad, and 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 I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who've who've had you know interactions with the immigration system. In my personal life, I'm also sort of working through the the, the nightmare, which is this sort of thicket of of policies. And watching a president do something like this, you know, not just not just with the 
you know, the well-educated immigrants, but also with the asylum seekers fighting DACA tooth and nail and ultimately losing, thankfully, is, is extraordinarily disheartening. And I think the claims to American exceptionalism are sometimes overblown. But, you know, if I would make the case for it on one point, it would be that um, this really is a nation of immigrants. It's certainly a nation that has a, a long and um, very uh, unfortunate history of, of racism and exclusion of immigrants. There's, there's a quote from uh, immigration historian Tyler Ambender, from the days of the Puritans to the present, every generation of Americans have believed that the latest wave of immigrants is completely different from and far inferior to their own immigrant ancestors and could never become true Americans. Of course, Stephen Miller, like me, is a Jew whose great-grandparents came to the U.S. from Eastern Europe to escape pogroms and came here not speaking a word of English. It really is, is, is really sad to see someone from that sort of family background achieve prominence in a country that gave your family an opportunity to assimilate and prosper, and then use that opportunity to pull um, the rug out of so many people's lives and dreams. So, you know, on behalf of the U.S., I guess, or I just want to say for, for all the listeners out there who may have been affected by this, that I'm really sorry. And it's it's just a really upsetting thing. The story for me is, you know, I, I am a, an immigrant as well. I grew up in the Netherlands and originally came to the United States on a student visa, and I'm now a green card holder. And I think that is you know, something that I have found very special about the U.S., um, especially coming from Europe, which is also, you know, has a lot of has a lot of European countries have a lot of immigrants, but there's still a dividing line between like the indigenous and the foreign. And even if your family has been in the country for three generations, in the Netherlands case, often with Turkish and Moroccan immigrants, there's still a word that essentially means sort of foreigner or a foreign blood that is used for people, even if they've been citizens for for three generations. And I think the fact that there's not, you know, a term like that, there's obviously terms of sort of Mexican-American, Chinese-American, but there's much more of a feeling of, you know, you become part of the country. And so I have found that very special about the US. And it's one thing that draws me here, and that makes me want to stay here. And so, yeah, I think the general contribution of immigrants and the attitude towards immigrants in this country is is somewhat exceptional, as you say. Yeah. And I can talk a little bit about my experience. So I'm a second generation immigrant. My father moved to the U.S. in the 80s to pursue his Ph.D. in botany. And shortly after he graduated, he decided that he wanted to stay. So he ended up taking, I believe, a postdoc in Alaska, where he brought my mom and my brother over from China, where they applied for their green card and eventually citizenship. And then I was born in Alaska. I like to consider myself the freedom child because of the one one child policy law in China, which (laughs) would have prevented me from ever existing. So I thank America for that. And now, I mean, I think that my family is almost like the epitome of, you know, the American dream that people seek and strive for when they come to America. My father now is working at Disney World, which is a really fun place for botanists. My brother and I have been (laughs) pretty successful for what it's worth. And I really think that the American dream is, you know, alive and well. And I like to think that my, my family has contributed a lot to, you know, American society as a whole. And we have to keep this dream alive so that we can continue bringing in the best and brightest, that this is still a place that people want to go so that they can reach their full potential. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just the, the exceptions that are built into the, the current executive order, there's a farm labor exemption for like temporary farm laborers who get paid at or below minimum wage. At, at, at first, they were they, they were talking about an exception for au pairs, which are basically like live in nannies from around the world who are also paid under minimum wage. So the the sort of the vision that's being painted of who's allowed in America right now, according to, to Stephen Miller and Donald Trump, is, you know, basically that that the, the current immigrants are subhuman and, and don't deserve um, the rights that, that that everyone else in this country does. And it's just it's extraordinarily upsetting. And I really hope this is not a presage for, for future policy. You know, there's 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 a long history in the U.S. of, of really noxious immigration. But there's also a history of, you know, laws getting passed that have ended up allowing more, you know, allowing lots of immigrants to come here and, and prosper, whether or not those 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 laws were necessarily intentional. So it's interesting. I think I, for, I think Matt Iglesias tweeted out that like it's impossible to imagine someone being serious about U.S.-China competition and doing this sort of immigration policy. But interestingly, we've seen over the past few months a fair amount of, of pretty a pretty remarkable bipartisan movement on uh, boosting these sort of tech tech issues aimed at increasing U.S. competitiveness from the you know bill moving 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 through Congress for hundred billion dollars for R and D. Uh, for the $15 billion for localizing semiconductor chip supply chains. Do you guys have any hypotheses about why the sorts of immigration policies that, that CSET and others are pushing to help on these issues hasn't necessarily gained the momentum that other relevant policies have? Speaking first a little bit to the U.S. context, obviously immigration is a politically sort of hot and fraught topic, and that might explain why there's been a little bit less traction there. I do think it's important, you know, we at CSET think about issues mostly from a national security and U.S. competitiveness perspective and try to evaluate things like immigration policies on those criteria, as opposed to a lot of other legitimate criteria one might think of and that others are thinking of, like humanitarian reasons and things like that. But even purely from a national security and competitiveness perspective, a lot of the industries that the U.S. wants to excel in, including AI, but also semiconductors, so more hardware, really draw on on immigrant talent and they contribute to U.S. innovation and U.S. businesses there. So we actually have a forthcoming paper on the semiconductor workforce. And our finding there is that about 40% of the people who are working in sort of high-end, more R&D type semiconductor jobs in the U.S. were born abroad. And about, you know, half to uh, two-thirds, depending on which field you look at, of the people who are kind of in the in the main sort of education pipelines that feed into the semiconductor workforce were born abroad. So those are really big percentages. And it feels really hard to imagine this push to bring more advanced semiconductor manufacturing, which includes a lot of R&D that you have to do as part of that, to the U.S., like we've seen in a couple of bills in the last few weeks, when you essentially you know, want to reduce the potential workforce size by several dozen percentages. So yeah. you know, I think that's kind of a big, big looming issue there. And there's a lot of tough political trade-offs for the people who on the one hand want to be you know, more competitive with China and excel in these high-tech fields, but on the other hand uh, are politically opposed to, to immigration reform. And yeah, yeah we're, I mean, we have to see kind of the way that that, that, that spins out. I don't, yeah, I don't know which side of that will win. It's one of the big lessons of Chinese industrial policy over the past few decades, which is that, you know, there are certain fields which are very capital intensive, which, you know, the requirements of really talented, really, really highly educated researchers are not that high. And for those sorts of things, money can solve your problems when you have a you know, talent deficit rel- relative to the rest of the world. 
but that's not the case with semiconductors. And, and you know, the, the $15 billion that, that the government is going to spend at the end of the day is, is, is probably, I mean, it's, it's an interesting exercise to think about how you would structure, like how much money it would take to spend to make up the cost of not having these immigrants work here. But it's, it's such a, it's like a stupid exercise in the first place because they should be working here because there really isn't any downside. I mean, there's, there's like the, there's, there's, I guess the downside of, of some people think that certain Chinese employees are uh, security risks for, for commercial espionage or whatnot. But even, even setting that aside, you know, 70% of the H-1Bs are, are Indian nationals. And, and I'm not sure there's a huge concern right now in Washington about, you know, Indian corporate espionage for building the next, you know, two, two nanometer fab in Chennai or something. So the loops that the, the intellectual loops you have to make this make sense are, are, are just too stupid to, to really be worth engaging with. It's also not an either or question, right? Like I think that totally. there are many things that you can do, including as part of immigration reform that really help American workers. There was a bill introduced, I don't know if it was last week or the week before that, from the House Armed Services Committee that created extra additional green card slots for people who work in national security relevant fields. I think 100 in the first year and then up to 500 a year. So it's not a lot of slots, but that's a, you know, that's a good amount. And the fees from that program would be used to sponsor STEM scholarships for, for American students. So I think you know, those are the kinds of policies that I think benefit both the industries and American workers and you know, potentially disadvantaged um, students who haven't gotten scholarships before. So I think it's those kinds of policies also that frame this not as a, you know, you're either picking immigrants or you're picking American workers. I think in a lot of cases, policies do both. I think another reason why, you know, immigration hasn't really been touched in decades is because America's always uniquely had the strength of attracting so many of the best and brightest in the world, right? And like, other countries have to compete with that. They know that they can't just sit back and like wait for the talent to come to them. Whereas America has been able to rely on that unique strength. And so that's why I think on top of like what Remco has mentioned about, you know, immigration being a super controversial topic, it's just, we're almost relying on a strength that maybe we need to recognize that that strength is eroding slightly because of, because of these other policies in other countries. And because you know, we're assuming that everyone wants to come here, but how long can that assumption last? Totally. Basically, this is, as, as you were saying, Tina, the, the, the assumption that all of this rests on, the, the reason people for, for decades have been dealing with all of this crap is because America has the best universities, has the cleanest air, has the best lifestyle, you know, the best restaurants, whatever. You know, when in six months, if America is like the only developed world country that still hasn't figured out how to deal with COVID, if I'm a fancy AI researcher, I would much rather live in Amsterdam or, or Toronto than, than have to, you know, live a locked down life in, in the Bay. So you're, you're totally right. You're totally right, Tina, that the U.S., based on its other advantages, has really had the luxury of having such a painful and inefficient immigration system. And it's totally not something that, you know, given given the, the trajectory of the of the of you know, American governance is something that we can we can rely on. So thinking about the sort of implications of this of this new policy, even if it's something that gets lifted in the in the you know, near to medium term, there's a fascinating study about a, a 2004 immigration policy wrinkle where foreign students who used to be able to assume that they would be getting an H-1B visa after graduation ended up having to start dealing with the cap. 
Remco, do you want to talk a little bit about what this study says and, and what implications it may have for the, the legacy of this current policy? Sure. So that study, I think, showed that it's not just that when visas become less available, it's that the people who already came are sort of have a harder time getting employment, things like that. But also when you look at things like who enrolls at American universities in the first place, that if the prospects of immigration after they graduate become more difficult, that the quality of the people who come decreases. So I think this study found that there were drops in SAT scores from countries that were affected. There were five countries that were not affected uh, by the drop. And there they found that, you know, compared to those countries, you saw quality decreases from the other countries and and just drops in, in enrollment more generally. So I think that that is a sign that, you know, not just it's not just about numbers, it's also about quality. And it's not just about the people who are already here and whether they have trouble saying it's also about the people who who decide to come in the first place. I would say, I think, you know, the kind of decrease in the H-1B cap that happened in 2004 is is, is like the thing that economists love, which is sort of a, a natural experiment yeah. that's not related to the outcomes that they study. What about the Chinese approach to tech talent competition? Yeah, so we did a recent study and we're doing uh, a lot more that's in progress now, looking at kind of the, you know, areas that the Chinese government is pushing in, which is kind of all the areas when it comes to tech talent competition. But we, we split it up in, in sort of three broad categories. One is domestic education. Two is recruiting Chinese citizens who are based abroad. And three is recruiting non-Chinese who are based abroad in sort of science and technology fields. So we found, especially, you know, in domestic education, I think there has been impressive progress. There's still a lot of issues. Obviously, when you're trying to reform a system that's that big, that fast, there are things that are going to be lagging and some things that are going to go easier than others. But when you compare it to the history of education reform in the West, I think it's been, you know, they've made relatively fast progress. But a lot of the controversial policies and some of the policies where it's harder to evaluate success have been related to Chinese talent based abroad and international non-Chinese talent based abroad. The, the big question for, for a long time was always, would Chinese universities be able to really produce world-class researchers and world-class research? And that's, and that's most certainly over the past uh, 10 years or so proven to be the case with, you know, professors at, at, at the likes of Tsinghua and Fudan being able to really, you know, go, go to bat with the rest of the, the leading universities in the world. The question, which I think is relevant to this crackdown on both, you know, Chinese STEM students studying abroad, as well as the, the H-1B program is like the, the, the drop off currently between the from the top you know ten or so you know research universities in China and and the rest as compared to the drop off that that the, that American universities have where you know school number twenty five is still very well resourced and is able to to punch at a much 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 you know punch on a much higher weight class than the than the twenty fifth ranked school on the mainland and the uncertainty and the increasingly difficult atmosphere for Chinese researchers in the U S would I imagine spill over to those universities ending up getting better PhD students. So inadvertently, you know, this is the sort of thing that ends up strengthening like who you've decided is your, is your adversary. So it's going to, it's going to be fascinating to watch what the, what the impacts of the interruption in, you know, Chinese students coming, coming to the U S will be. I imagine also there'll be more, there'll be more, you know, heading off to to Australia and and the UK and the like. And sort of just the atmospherics of yeah. 
you know, people want thinking that they'll be held with more suspicion in their future, you know, employment if they if they come and stay in the U.S. It's all these. I mean, we'll understand what you know what this time period has done to 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 the flows of talent around the world, but disaggregating it certainly will be will be not a straightforward activity. For sure, I think the yeah, I I, I think the general argument that's often made about you know uncertainty and other things being you know being bad for competitiveness and, and performance, I think are generally true. Sometimes though, people make that argument perhaps a bit too strongly because there's a lot of other things that inform people's immigration decisions, including, you know, the attractiveness of the professional ecosystem. And I think there are still a lot of strengths that the U.S. has. So I would be surprised. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm curious kind of what people's senses are of how much they think the enrollments and stay rates will decline say in two years when things are a little more back to normal and we can travel again. You know, we we know, for example, that in the past, Chinese uh, PhDs stayed at rates around 85 to 90% in most STEM fields after they graduated from U.S. universities. Do people expect that to drop to, you know, 80%? Do they expect it to drop to 70? Do they expect it to drop to 30? Yeah, we're part of what I'm excited about uh, that we're doing at CSET now, which if anyone's interested in forecasting, they should definitely check out is this project called Fortel, which is sort of a crowd forecasting platform where hopefully we'll be launching a few questions that relate to this. I myself think that, you know, given how attractive the U.S. still is professionally, that, you know, if the immigration doors remain, you know, somewhat open, there are always going to be issues until there's kind of comprehensive immigration reform. But, you know, if the door is not completely shut, the U.S. attractiveness is going to remain high and we probably won't see won't see huge drops. We can still see, you know, significant drops that that hurt U.S. innovation, especially given some of the other countries sort of reforming their immigration system to attract um, talent, as Tina has, uh, as Tina has looked at. The impact we were talking earlier about the 2004 blip was that the SAT scores of applicants from the mo- from the affected countries, the ones that weren't confident they'd be able to get an H-1B at graduation, declined by about 20 points or um, 1.5%. Um, you can only assume that those numbers will be larger thanks to all of the um, craziness that's been going on. Tina, how much better are the other countries at uh, making it easy for uh, talent to come and stay? Right. Yeah. So I would say that our key competitors, so the research I did looked at the United Kingdom, France, Canada, and Australia, they're going in a very different direction. So within the past five years, each country has essentially instituted policies specifically geared to attract highly skilled STEM talent. I think especially, let's say, we, if we look at France, they have the French tech visa. And so it's basically attracting individuals who are interested in working in France's tech sector, who have the skills. And then it essentially grants them a visa that lasts for four years. And in France, if you, if you are on a legal status for five years, you can apply for a permanent residency or citizenship. So it's it's really trying to pave like a clear pathway um, for talent so that if they want to go to France, they don't have to worry about any sort of huge immigration obstacles. I think one's Canada is probably more uh, relevant in terms of taking or attracting talent away from the US. We've seen like billboards erected in Silicon Valley that's basically saying like, if you're having H-1B problems, you know, come up north and, and we'll, we'll take you in. And in 2015, Canada established 
this express entry program or system really. And applicants can essentially apply through like a points-based system that, and they're raked on, you know, their education, their work experience, if they have family or friends in Canada, and they're basically ranked to see um, basically who would contribute the most to Canadian society and then who's like most likely to stay. And those with the highest points get invited to essentially apply for permanent residency and they don't even need a job offer to do so. And then these applications go through in six to nine months on average. And that's that's a pretty big difference compared to the U.S. system where H-1Bs are distributed on an annual basis. They only last for three years and they don't even guarantee permanent residency. And so a lot of these countries are trying to make it easier. And I would say, you know, as they head in that direction, what the U.S. should do is not shoot itself in its foot and try and, you know, maintain leverage our ability to attract such talent and making it easier for the the AI talent that we want in our country to come here if that's where they choose to go. Tobias Lute, the the CEO of Shopify, was like in and out of the US with his girlfriend and ended up leaving and coming to Canada because like he couldn't figure out a way to to stay in the US. So, you know, already like a multi-billion dollar tech company just just out of out of America's hands in the past few years because of you know lost to the north because of because of the <laughs> immigration policy. I also want to say so th- I think this is an interesting part of the story when it comes to US competition with China and especially some of the concerns about technology transfer that often doesn't get a lot of play. In the US the focus of that conversation has been incredibly domestic so we're worried about China and Chinese scientists taking technology and research from U.S. universities. But just like in export controls or in financial investment, you know, we're not necessarily worried about China getting technology from the U.S. per se. You know, as I think the U.S. government would say, our goal is to prevent China from getting sensitive technology that might be misused, period, whether it comes from the U.S. or whether it doesn't. And I think the purely domestic focus of that conversation so far has really prevented the U.S. from thinking about this in in the terms that export controls and, and investment controls are usually thought of, which is, you know, if they can get it elsewhere, so not the US, but for example, in Europe or in Japan, if the US blocks it, you know, that hurts American businesses, it hurts American universities, but it doesn't actually help us achieve the goal of reducing sensitive technology transfer, if it just moves the problem elsewhere instead of solving it. And in all the bills that we've seen on kind of Chinese tech transfer and concerns about, you know, scientists and things like that, that issue really hasn't gotten a lot of play. There hasn't been encouragement or money made made available to do kind of multilateral outreach and things like that. So I think that's also, you know, when we think about kind of this this global competition for talent is something that that often kind of gets neglected. You brought up corporate espionage. Like I, I think the 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 dual yields technologies, the the titanium alloys for the the missiles make complete sense in in doing that sort of multilateral effort to box, you know, box the Chinese military industrial complex out of those technologies makes is totally justifiable. But I the the more I've learned about the the corporate espionage that are that you know doesn't necessarily have big national security implications. The more sketched out about it, uh, I I am, and the less confident I am that this really is something that needs to needs to be you know a a matter that ends up Im- impacting immigration policy and you know you know education matriculation policy and what have you. There's an aspect of it that is is a little sundry. First off, this policy was was 
you know, corporate espionage was criminalized um, in the mid 90s at the point where America was the most dominant it ever was from a commercial standpoint and where, where America was at the top. We, of course, have a long history of stealing other, you know, of stealing European plans for mills and whatnot. There are interesting, you know, distribution graphs of like which countries have the most stolen IP and goods. And China really isn't an outlier. Basically, the chart maps very directly to GDP, where if you're a poorer country, you're going to end up having more counterfeit goods and, 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 and whatnot. So, you know, my, the more I've learned about this, the more I've, I've gotten to, see, to sense that this is sort of like a way for certain parts of corporate America to like get the FBI to help them lock down their technology. And, and it's almost like a, there's a bit of like an anti, an anti-competition, like a monopolist edge to this, which a, a law, you know, a law review paper made more eloquently that I'll link to in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely an element there. I love the, you know, this, in the scientists and the spy, this recent book, which I recommend everyone read on this issue. I think that was a, that was a big theme. The, thing that I would say is, you know, and this is sort of very high level, but I don't think we can expect companies to do all the kind of thinking about security and risk for for themselves. I don't think that they are, as an economist would say, you know, they don't internalize all the cost of that. To them, a bit of IP theft might be acceptable to, you know, to their business if it means they can get more talent or if it means they get Chinese market access. But they are ultimately not on the line if that IP ends up being used in ways that harm U.S. national security interests more broadly. So sure. I do think there is a role in general for the government in that. Whether the current policies strike the right balance, obviously, is a, is a different question. But I think, you know, in terms of should the U.S. just get out of the business of thinking about IP theft, as a whole, I would say that because of this problem, because, you know, the company doesn't take into account the interest of the of the sort of country and the national interest as a whole, we can't only rely on them to, to do that. Now, obviously, IP is important to companies. And we know, for example, in the semiconductor industry that companies already take very active countermeasures and, you know, don't um, put employees that they have some suspicions about on their most sensitive programs. So they definitely do a lot of that already. Yeah. So it really comes down to where like what industries you think are like strategic and of national security concern. A lot of the cases that you've seen the FBI bringing when it comes to these sorts of things are not really in those industries. And, you know, everyone nowadays can say that their, you know, their industry is is, is nationally strategic and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, and like corn GMO, like, come on. It's just <laughs> yeah, there's there's two things here, I think, that often get conflated that kind of muddle the issue or make it harder to to take targeted countermeasures. One is the conflation of general immigration policy with targeted screening. So, you know, some people say, well, there's worries about espionage. That means we need fewer, you know, Chinese people or fewer immigrants. I think, you know, there's a lot more sort of targeted points of control that you can do instead of just saying, you know, we have to we have to get fewer of these people in general. Some espionage, actually many espionage cases involve American citizens. So that's never going to solve your problem. The second conflation that I think we've seen, especially in the last couple of years, is the conflation of private sector with academic activity, and especially some of the cases sort of in the what is being called the research security space involve, you know, university-based scientists. And we tend to talk about those with the same language that we use for the private sector, things like IP theft, things like espionage, even though they involve related but very different activities. So I think... Those two, you know, splitting up the immigration debate broadly from the sort of targeted countermeasures debate specifically and splitting up the private sector from the academic sector would really help people, I think, talk about this in, in more useful ways. 
when you look at universities, most of the research that's happening there is very basic. It's not as, you know, sensitive as people may think. So that's like one thing to consider is that, you know, at the university level, not a lot of insensitive research is happening there in the first place. Remco, there was an interesting uh, little cultural wrinkle when you did this survey of the preferences between American and international PhDs in the AI field about how they pick their next step after academia. Do you want to talk a little bit, a little bit about your findings? Yeah, so this was part of a project where we built initially a database of AI PhDs and collected a bunch of their career information to, among other things, assess you know how many are staying in the United States after they graduate and how many go back to either their home country or go to a third country, in part because of some of these concerns about you know, talent leaving and potentially taking sensitive technology. But you can't get answers to all the questions you want answers to just from looking at people's LinkedIn profiles. So one of the other things we did was survey them to ask about their decisions when they think about what job to take. This career question, you know, where where did they decide to work? We found some interesting differences and, and, and what factor, yeah, where they decide to work and what sort of factors were important to that decision. We found a lot of interesting differences between domestic PhDs and international PhDs. I think the broad sort of broad brush summary of that might be that, you know, American citizens seem to choose their jobs a little more based on kind of social impact and being near family and friends, or at least they say that they do, which obviously is a survey. So you're always a little bit concerned about, you know, are they just saying that or is that actually true? But that's at least the data we find. And whereas international PhDs are more concerned about professional growth and salary and less concerned about location and family and friends. It was pretty remarkable. I think it was like some, something somewhere like 60% said that they valued, um, 60% of foreign PhD, foreign ed PhDs valued salary and benefits highly as opposed to, I don't know, what does it look like? 40% for Americans. And on the one hand, maybe this is just like Americans feel uncomfortable talking about money. But there was this uh, great blog post I read uh, a few years back of this Chinese national who ended up getting educated in going to university in the UK and doing his MBA at Stanford. And he, he told this anecdote about when he showed up in the GSP career office, expecting you know, to have a conversation about different career paths or whatever. So he comes in and he sits down and he says, he says, I went to the career office and told them that my primary goal after the MBA was to make money. I told them that 500,000 sounded like a good number. They were very confused though, as they said their goal was to help me find my passion and my calling. I told them that it was my calling to make money for my family. They were trying to be helpful, but in my case, their advice did not turn out to be very helpful. Uh, anyways, remember <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, you know, I, it's always a question how, how representative that is, but it definitely resonates with my experience also that there is a little bit of a, of a filter when you think about, you know, an immigration decision for the people who come to the U.S. in the first place is often the most ambitious uh, people and people who, you know, like to think big. Certainly, I see that among my Dutch friends and myself, people who had sort of strong career ambitions were much more likely to to leave the country and settle elsewhere. And I think that that's probably one explanation for why we see this in our data is people who are ambitious, either on a business level or on that sort of a societal political level, are probably, you know, more likely to more likely to take the leap of, you know, moving across an ocean and in a, into a place where often you don't know anyone. Yeah. So this is another this is another example of that. And also, when you, when you come from a, a less well-off country, that marginal, you know, ten twenty thousand dollars a year you could be making taking one job as opposed to another really matters in a way that it won't necessarily if all your if you, you you're not sending remittances if if it's just like a difference in having you know fifty extra square feet in your apartment. Definitely, definitely. So Tina, CNS recently had a, a national security pitch competition. I was wondering if you could give an abbreviated version of yours. 
Yeah, sure. All the pitches were two minutes long, so they were pretty oh short to begin with. <laughs> but I can, How about the extended uh, version then? We, we can do five. <laughs> I mean, what my pitch was about is basically essentially looking at, you know, like the possibilities of what AI can do has exploded in recent years, right? Because there's been a lot more data and there's been a lot more computing power. But these two resources are becoming more challenging and expensive to obtain. So, you know, data is scattered between and within sectors, and most of it's pretty on, like, most of it is unstructured, making it really difficult to train AI systems. And then also computing power requirements have skyrocketed, which has led to extremely high energy costs. So right now, like, only big tech companies can really overcome these barriers, but you know, and innovation doesn't just happen at Google or Amazon. It happens everywhere at universities and startups. But because these barriers are so high, they're not able to engage in as meaningful AI research. So my pitch was essentially to lower these barriers uh, by democratizing data and computing power so that any American with a creative idea should have the resources to explore that idea. So with that, a national cloud would be able to you know, bring data from multiple sources into one location where it could be structured, accessible, and federated so that innovators aren't going to multiple places to like try to track down data or even find out if data exists. And then computing power, people have long argued this, that it should be either subsidized or distributed in grants because, you know, smaller organizations just can't foot the really high bills required to train complex algorithms. And so like the example I gave in my pitch was, you know, in 1903, Samuel Langley uh, was tasked by the U.S. government with $50,000 to create the first airplane. And everyone expected him to be the one to achieve this task because he was the most qualified scientist at the time. But he didn't succeed. His plane crashed into the Potomac River. And then instead, just a week or two later, the, uh, the Wright brothers went airborne on a budget of $2,000. And the Wright brothers were just two bike shop owners in Ohio. And so the idea is that, you know, we can't expect all great innovations to happen from places or people that we think are the most qualified. The great thing about America is that we are a extremely innovative country where risky ideas are celebrated and you're encouraged to explore them. And so if AI is supposed to be the next you know, technology that's going to bring us or maintain our leadership in the world, then we need to ensure that every creative mind in America has the resources to achieve the next AI discovery. Well, as a, well, I, I've been coding for, ooh, six weeks now. And I can just yesterday made my Google Cloud account and learned that, you know, the thing I wanted to do to my data frame was going to cost me money. It was, it was going to go over the, over the limit of like how many daily queries I could make to the Google Maps. Right. <laughs> so that's some bullshit. Like, come on, let me, <laughs> let me, let me work here, guys. Right. You know, the, the way that, yeah, the way that it, you know, the, the, the way that these companies get you is they also lock you in by giving a, a startup, you know, $10,000 of like Amazon cloud. And then once you're sort of in the system, it gets harder and harder to, to break out and, and, and rewrite all your, all your databases in order to, in order to go to one of your competitors. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put my, my, my $50 billion check behind you, Tina, for this. I'm sold. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of good progress too. I, I pitched this idea or I submitted my pitch in March. And since then, like two weeks ago, Congress just proposed a 
National Research Resource Cloud Bill to create a task force to essentially figure out how feasible a national cloud would be. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is like very directly going against very well moneyed interests, right? And the amount of bad press that, that that Amazon and Google have gotten is is substantial. But you know, when it comes to this sort of thing, which is not going to be like a national issue, really, I'm I'm worried for for your pitches future because of the collective action problems here. But here's to hoping. To, to close out, do you guys have any relevant or not necessarily relevant books, movies, TV activities? Research papers you'd like to uh, you'd like to pitch the gift of global talent by an economist William Kerr. I think actually you know despite the name it actually has I think a good review of both kind of the research showing that immigrants benefit the U.S. but also some of the ways in which there are complicated trade offs that we have to we have to grapple with. So these questions of immigration that book is a that book is a great one. Tina, feel free yeah. to just like talk about whatever TV show you're watching. You don't have to be also like Remco. <laughs> What TV show I'm watching right now? I don't know. I feel like it's too embarrassing to say. I I have been watching the new show on Netflix. It's called Dating Around. I don't know if like anyone has heard of it. It's like basically I like a person go on goes on five blind dates and then they can only go on one second date with one person. They I feel really blind. Lame even what are they? Are they blindfolded? No, they're not literally blind. It's oh, just lame. it's just like watching, you know, humans interact on a blind date that I don't know. It it brings me entertainment joy. I feel a little bit lame explaining it right now, but I highly recommend it. It's an easy watch especially during these trying times. When I was, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, my like only ambition in life was to be on one of those MTV dating shows. And, you know, I almost <laughs> I had I almost had the opportunity in China, like the, the Feichung Wurao people ended up getting in contact with me. But like, I think a month before I started dating my my now girlfriend, and she was not necessarily down with that program. So sadly, that <laughs> opportunity uh, has has passed me by. But you know, always, always happy to live vicariously through whoever, whoever Netflix is casted in this. My pitch is uh, which is a new hip hop variety show in the in the vein of China has hip hop. It's much better in that it takes hip hop much more seriously than than the Chris Wu show did. The judges are all real rappers who all have, you know, really come from nothing and understand the the challenges that come with making it in uh, in, in the music business in China in a in a niche field. The quality of the guests is much higher than some of the other shows in the past. And they focus more on the music than on the kind of like gossip and people fighting and whatnot. I was really negative on, on Chinese hip hop a few weeks ago, but I'm still watching the show because uh, I have too much time on my hands. Remco and Tina, thanks so much for coming on China Talk today. Thank you. Thank you. Immigrants, we get the job done. It's a hard line when you're an import, baby boy, it's hard times. When you ain't sent for braces, feed the belly of the beast with they pitchforks. Rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, ya se armó, ya se despertaron, it's a whole awakening. La alarma ya sonó hace rato, los que quieren buscan, pero nos apodan como vagos. We're the same ones hustling on every level, ten los datos. Walk a mile in our shoes, abrochense los zapatos. I've been scoping y'all dudes, y'all ain't been working like I do. Why y'all work ya? It hurts ya. You claim I'm stealing jobs, oh, Peter Piper claims. Depict them, he just underpaid Pablo. But there ain't a paper trail when you're living in the shadows. We America's ghost riders, the credits only borrowed. It's a matter of time before the checks all come. But immigrants, we get the job done. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. We get the job done. Look how far I come. 
strengths, we get the job. Yeah.